Welcome to Pocket Guide to Hell, the radio show, where we explore the intersections of art, politics, and culture as illuminated by Chicago's past. Along the way, we talk with fine folks doing the work of keeping the past present and show you the places where the city's history resides today. Near the end of the 19th century, a visiting labor leader called Chicago a, quote, pocket edition of hell. Asked if that was fair, he took in the corruption, inequality, and general nastiness and said, quote, on second thought, hell is a pocket edition of Chicago. But these are the stories, the people, and places that nudge us a bit closer to heaven. Gloria Talamantes is an artist, educator, and editor of the Gate newspaper in Back of the Arts. She has been a graffiti artist and muralist going by the name Glow uh, across Chicago since her youth, with works appearing primarily across the southwest side uh, in neighborhoods like Back of the Yards and Little Village, as well as spaces across the city. Gloria, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I wanted to start off uh, with just kind of a general opening question. I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about your own story. Like, how did you get started in graffiti, muralism, and public art in general? And and what was the Chicago scene like when you were coming up? I got started uh, when I was in high school. I think that, um, so I started, um, I used to play a lot of um, contact sports. And I want to say the end, or the last two years of my high school experience, were kind of shaky because I was starting to um, come into this um, awakening of how things happened with administration inside the, uh, the school that I went to. And I started to push back at a lot of different rules, policies, and things that were happening within the school. And so the last year of my high school um, years, I didn't join any sports um, because of that. In order to kind of fill that void, I picked up on some of the things that I had been doing prior to uh, playing sports. Back in elementary school, I was um, doing like a lot of uh, floral drawings and floral motifs. And I would just do the, you know, the very cliche like Maria and David or, you know, <laughs> throughout that process, I started learning about graffiti. But yeah, it wasn't until high school when I didn't have that um, access to um, to play sports and be watched by the administration. And so, um, so yeah, I, I started uh, in high school um, and then just kept going with it and as soon as I had my son in 2008 is when I um, just strictly focus on sanctioned, more sanctioned um, work. So uh, what were the both formal and informal ways? I mean, it sounds like you had already had, you had been doing this stuff kind of on your own. You had a creative spirit and everything. Uh, but like, what were the resources available to you to kind of get connected either the people who are already doing this or more arts programming in general to kind of help you formalize and practice and everything? Um, I remember in high school, I took uh, art history. And I guess um, the teacher that I had at that time had accumulated so many like off days. Mm -hmm. And so half of the year he wasn't there. And so I, you know, (laughs) it was really sad, actually. Um, But when we did get a chance to have him in class, it was really cool. But also, like, it was it was typical the typical like Eurocentric art history. And so other than that, I think that everything else was really based on like learning to be on the street, camaraderie between different graffiti artists, learning on my own, just doing research. How'd you get linked up to those people who I always picture like this, like this notion of like crews going out and like, (laughs) you know, tagging trains and stuff like that. But like, was that the story? And, and, and if so, how did you get connected to that? Or was it just kind of like you knew somebody and they knew somebody and then. Uh, So those bonds formed in high school, in grade school, I had a friend whose boyfriend was in a crew. 
So I started learning about all of this, um, I want to say sixth, fifth or sixth grade. Then in high school, there was just a whole different set of people, right? Um, that Those type of bonds happened in lunchrooms. It happened in, in garages. It happened in, in different environments, I think, for me. Initially, it was the school. <laughs> so, I mean, that's it's both not surprising and also interesting to hear that these were so informal. And I'm thinking about, you know, like the way that we talk about public art in this city oftentimes like doesn't really talk about graffiti, maybe talks about muralism, but in particular ways. How is the story of public art in Chicago typically told? And, and what are the things that may be missing based off of your own experience? I think that um, some of the things that are missing are definitely the the way that graffiti um, has influenced a lot of the public art. I know that there are artists, um, traditional, more traditional older artists who might not be as accepting of the form itself as as being a mural. But, I mean, the, the real definition of a mural is just art on any type of paint placement on, you know, on a surface. Um, I think sometimes what we're missing is the meshing of, like, how these things um, are happening. So this, let's say, for example... Um, so-and-so artist did this great mural off of 16th or something, right, um, in 1979. And I, I'm more interested in, like, okay, so what was happening in 1979? Like, yeah. what was the political climate like? Um, what were graffiti artists doing at that time? And how, was, how, was, how were those pushbacks looking, right? Because I think that that's the other part that's um, usually missing is the um, street artists, um, uh, particularly graffiti artists, play in having that conversation by practicing their, their, their art on surfaces where it's, it's not sanctioned, right? And so I think that that's what's missing from the larger conversation of public art. How has graffiti art, something that for a very long time, and still, you know, some people are still not all about it, but um, how how has graffiti um, been shunned, for lack of better words, uh, so oppressed from the larger conversation, right? And so I think that there are people who truly do dedicate themselves to um, having those type of conversations, but I think they're very few because it's just so new. Um, I mean, that's interesting that you bring up sort of the context and, and sort of the, the fact that people are, are, are doing things in a particular moment, responding to particular things for particular reasons. I'm interested in asking and uh, knowing a little bit more about how public art like yours helps to kind of write the history of Chicago, both in the really short term and then also like longer historical narratives. So you had uh, uh, in a couple of different places put up uh, murals <clears throat> in response to the uprisings this past summer. Uh, that were about one uh, one Lawndale, about black-brown unity between North and South Lawndale going up. And that seems to me to be uh, sort of like one of those very much like it's a it's a response to the moment, completely to like it, it obviously references longer histories and, and bigger needs and everything like that. But uh, like that also exists with other work that you're doing that's going to be, uh, be made public in the Grand Blue Line station. Uh, that talks about sort of longer histories of the Grand Avenue commercial corridor that's there and that required a little bit more research and a little bit more sort of like long-term reflection and, and everything. Do you see those uh, as, as different anyway or do you see those as really, those two projects are really just part of the same documenting history, kind of like helping to frame the way we talk about what's going on? I think it's the same. I think... Um in, in many ways, it's the same. And I guess, yeah, there, there are differences for sure. But um, why I think they're the same is because I have to also consider the things that um, the community of North Lawndale has gone through. Um, and so with that, also thinking about the things that the community in Little Village has gone through even before these uprisings, right? And so... Um, in that sense, there's still that research that's um, needed, or at least that context that you, that's necessary in order for you to know how to how to act on put placing artwork in those communities. And so, I mean, I can just 
go in and 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 just uh paint something or anything right which in a lot of cases is happening now because there's just different space that people are are noticing now um and so i think in 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 that sense it's the same um where i'm still using the knowledge that i do have already about the communities um so i didn't have to do as much research because i am a part of those communities and so i um not naturally but i I've, i'm just a person who wants to know what was there before what happened what are some of the things that have been affecting our communities um and so i think that it's it's all a matter of like just the perspective in which you take to create that process to to paint yeah. um the difference though is um that for the one Lawndale um, slogan that we were painting is that it was more directly focused on and for the people of that community. And um, I think that the, the train station piece, those pieces, those are more created for people who go to and from that um, neighborhood. There are definitely people who are part of that neighborhood and can understand that. But then there's also the larger, the larger community of Chicago, right? Or even just uh, people who are visiting who might not know about the neighborhood, who might not know about the history of the place. Um, in that sense, I think that that's pretty much the difference. Yeah, no, I mean, that's interesting. Uh, it references what somebody I used to know called plop and drop art. Um, <laughs> just go in and I, I, you know, very much personally appreciate that approach to, to that deeper form of context about where you're creating because it's going to be there, you know, and it's, it's supposed to be responsive to the people who are around there. Uh, in, in that sense, we, I mean, we don't need to name names, but currently sort of, we can maybe think of another example, uh, that's happening, uh, with, uh, some paintings that are going up at, at, uh, Marshall Boulevard and Cermak. You know, I, I don't quite know how to ask this question, but like maybe <laughs> like how does that not represent the vision that you presented here? Well, uh, there's just really no um, conversation. There was really no context behind what was there before, what was happening there, what that space represents to the people in what the community. What was that space before? So that space used to be Latino Youth um, Alternative High School. Um, it used to uh, house a, uh, in the quarter there, there was an Aurelio, Aurelio Diaz uh, heritage mural, uh, actually indigenous mural. You know, when these developers purchased this property, they whitewashed it. And so now um, they're hiring artists not giving no real sense of like direction or anything. Um, you know, artists are artists, <laughs> you know, they're a lot of times not thinking about, I, I don't want to speak for them, but I feel like um, f from what it seems like is that they're just, they're trying to play like a graffiti guideline game with street art and it's too different. It's totally two different ball games. What, like, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Um, well, graffiti is something that you do without permission, mm -hmm. and street art is typically something that you can do without permission. But it's typically illustration or like aesthetically, it's just something completely different. And graffiti is more like letters, letter structures. Um, there's a whole formula to it, and whereas to street art, just it's it's whatever you're gonna paint, right? And so I think that part of that is just that the similarities of them using, utilizing the same tools that, that we have been using for such a long time, which is spray paint. So yeah, I think that that's one of the things that, that kind of gets very gray in that area. So um, so yeah, anyway, so that space um, was uh, for some time, SIP 22, and you know there was a lot of pushback from community members about the coffee shop itself because you know it wasn't taking or considering their their clients right like who who is your customer your customer um in little village you know it was just something that on an even more important note they were trying to um apply to have the plaza there privatized so that they can have a, a large patio and so there was a lot of pushback from the community eventually at some point in order to make room for that 
um, that process had already initiated, and they removed the benches in the plaza where, you know, elders come and sit and people come and read there. And so when that happened um, and we had conversations with the alderman about it, he kind of backtracked a little bit and said, oh, I was just, you know, removing them because um, I want to, like, polish them up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they'll be back. Don't, don't worry. But they'll be back. <laughs> and so it took him like months before they um, put him back. But prior to that, we just had local carpenters and people from the community just come out one day and teach us how to build benches. Yep. And we did it as a whole neighborhood. And so that created um, such a needed experience for everyone to understand that one it's hard to fight for land space and also the fact that that space is also being used by the indigenous community is something that we need to really honor because prior to all these spaces being here this was this is their land yeah yeah and i mean the the power to both like support kind of people who are living there and, and and also to erase people who are living there or have been living there. I think there's a real sort of double-edged sword. Well, I mean, it's interesting yeah. to me the way in which, like, public art, on one hand, like, it can preserve a past, right? But the, the question always is, like, whose past is being preserved? And it can be really, like, a way of kind of, like, fixing the identity of a place. And in some ways, I mean, what we're talking about, I think, connects to, to some of those larger stories that we're having around like public monuments and, and, and memorials right now yeah. and like when you put up a statue or, or when you paint a mural what should be the lifespan of that work of art in, in a way and how should artists like feel about that I mean I think a lot of people when they put up these works they hope that they last for decades if not centuries but maybe that's public art should be more fluid and, and responsive to the moment but I'm, I'm curious about I mean as an artist yourself, particularly kind of early in your career, how did you feel about that? Like knowing that you're going to create something and it might last for a couple months, it might last for a couple years, or it might get like just like, you know, painted over by the city like the next day. But yeah, I mean, how did you feel about your work knowing that you're putting something out into the world that you didn't know how long people would be able to kind of experience it or, or, or see it? I think that during that time, I knew that I was um, creating for a specific audience, mm-hmm. other than just the the passerby. Right in graffiti, there we do have a an underground culture of sorts. So during those times, the internet wasn't as um, relevant <laughs> to um, showcase our artwork. A lot of times, we use the CTA lines to work off of that space where the lines ran so that you can we can ride the train and look at each other's work mm-hmm. and it was almost like a way to um, show each other what we were working on and how we're, we're getting to different spaces for me I think that it was just more like I didn't necessarily care too much about um, who saw it I was I knew that I was creating it for the larger community that I was part of and, and that was the graffiti hip-hop uh, underground community here in Chicago. If you were part of that community, you knew what it was. You didn't necessarily know who it was, but you knew what it was and you were able to respect that. I think in that sense, like, I was thinking of, like, that. It would um, sometimes anger me that I got buffed because there were times where I painted that night before and by the morning it was gone. Mm-hmm. And so none of my community got to see it, Mm -hmm. you know. I think it also comes with the territory of being a graffiti artist to know that you run the risk of it just not being there. Is there anything that you did in those early years that, like, lasted far longer than you thought it would? Like, you came back and, like, oh, it's still here. It hasn't been, like, (laughs) painted over. Or, like, somebody else, some other artist has covered it up. Yeah, Like a little, like, weird, like, little trace, right, of your past that just sort of survives. So for a long time, I had um, some tags up off of the, what used to be the Douglas line, the pink line now. Um, I had some tags there that were just terrible because it was just like some of the first ones that I had ever, you know, really done in, in such a public space. Yeah, the tags and then the etch bath. Etch bath is like the acid they use on windows mm-hmm. to, to do like different opaque drawings and stuff. Huh. Drawings. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
things like that that are, unless you replace the whole window, it's going to stay there yeah. forever. <laughs> I know that you were at least some somehow involved in the muralism registry project that the city of Chicago was going. Um, how do you think that that impacts what we see around the neighborhood and maybe like the longevity of it? How do you think that might change the way that people kind of just throw stuff up or do have to ask for permission versus just going and painting a wall? I mean, I think that um, a lot of times, as I said, like street artists are just looking to get up anywhere and everywhere, right? And they're treating that as their form of like, you get up the most or you do the most. <laughs> well, like for the, for, the, for the mural registry, uh, you know, for instance, the William Walker thing uh, that used to be over by Karini Green uh, would maybe have stayed up. That thing is missing now but also like lives on in stories and photographs about it, but it's also in a very real sense like missing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was really sad. I saw that actually getting buffed. So it was really a sad moment for me. But I think, I mean, I think the city, they mean well by creating the mural registry and I think it's necessary, especially for work that's coming up. However, I think that it totally misses out on completely rectifying the root of the cause, right? who is buffing this it's the city itself yeah right it's a different department but you know we have to look at that system and realize that that system might not be completely uh useful definitely might need to stick around but not to the capacity that it has been and so i think about that and then the other piece that i think about is the the nuance of like what happens in communities, like communities of immigrant people who are living in the shadows most of the time because they're afraid, who own some of these spaces and require, in order for them to protect whatever mural is in their space, wherever they're registering this mural or this artwork, they might not want to sign that paper. And so that, that creates another barrier to protect the artwork. But yeah, I think that the, the mural registry was uh, was a, a good step toward um, preserving. One thing that we didn't talk to you a lot about, Gloria, is like the work that you've been doing kind of with, with other artists and, and mentoring other artists. I guess, too, you know, when I was asking you that earlier question about things that you had done when you were younger that like survived longer than anticipated, like what that may have been like if like, you know, people that you've mentored um, or even, I mean, your own children are, are artists, right? Yeah, or my son it, is. Yeah. yeah. Like, if you shared that with them, or I'm just kind of curious about, like, how, like, knowledge and passions and interests get passed from one generation to the, the next. And, and, what, and, like, techniques, too. And techniques, you know? too, right? Because, you know, you've been part of, of this world, um, and, and now you're kind of artists of the next generation like you know what are what are you what do you feel that you can teach them and, and what are you learning from them too how they're kind of responding to the city and, and kind of understanding their world well i think that younger generations right now younger artist generations are very um i hate to say this word but woke they are they they really are very sharp and they're very bold and they're you know they're not afraid and i really love that and i think that's something that i learn from them right now um, they're able to really fortify like my ability to speak out against some of the things that I'm seeing that I know are wrong um, or just in general just share my story, um, which is something that I'm not typically used to doing. Um, as a graffiti artist, you know that you that I have been working under the radar for such a long time that it feels almost uncomfortable to be so public. I'm more pressured by the young people than I am feeling the pressure of other people around me. Um, and that's because I feel like I have that responsibility to them um, because I do want them to um, understand things in different perspectives and make their own choices. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I learned that from them a lot is like not to be fearful about speaking up, um, about using my voice and, you know, and that's the other thing, like I'm, I'm telling them these things like, no, you need to speak up for yourself. And like, I caught myself, you know, saying these things and I'm like, wait, I'm not doing that for myself. How am I telling them to do that or trying to teach them to do that if I'm not practicing that? And so I think that. Um, being able to 
um, have that conversation even with myself has really helped me understand um, my own voice. I think that um, society has really um, done a number on our youth where, you know, we're constantly, like, talking about them rather than talking to them. So, Gloria, can you give uh, our listeners some sense of where they can learn more about you or see some of your stuff? Or what, what do you want to shout out? I do want to shout out that I still don't have a website, and I am so proud of that. <laughs> 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 I am so proud of not having a website. <laughs> um, but, no, seriously, I, I don't have a website. I might get one soon. <laughs> but uh, you can typically find me on Instagram. Um, you can find me on Facebook. Just the regular, schmegular social <laughs> at, medias. At what? At Glow One. Glow One. And then you have stuff up at, at High Park Art Center right now, currently? Until, I do. Yeah. Um, so I'm part of um, the Artist Run Chicago 2.0 at the Chicago uh, High Park Art Center. Um, we worked on, I worked on a, a mural installation. Uh, actually, it's a mixed media installation with MM Collective, a, uh, all women collective that I'm a part of. Um, and that's running until the end of December, I believe. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if you go to the Hyde Park Art Center uh, website, you'll find all the information there on how to schedule your visit. Yeah, check it out. And then also stop by the uh, Blue Line Grand Station at some point in the future, TBD, uh, for some more work. Uh, Gloria, thank you so much for coming in uh, as as sort of my neighbor. <laughs> I've been I've been watching uh, and learning about what you do and, and and watching what you do, even just on the blocks around my house, uh, with uh, a lot of admiration. And um, and thank you so much for sharing sort of what you've been up to and and why you do what you do. Thank you. Hey, Elliot, pop quiz. Uh-oh. How many stars are there on the city of Chicago's municipal flag? Well, Paul, it's obviously 42. <laughs> no, no, it's four, right? It's four, that's right. right. But did you know that when the flag was formally adopted in 1917, there were only two stars? You want to take a guess at what those two stars represented? Uh, the Great Chicago Fire and something about uh, uh, indigenous genocide. <laughs> no, 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 unfortunately not. Uh, instead, it was, you're right, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 and the 1893 World's Fair. And it was actually at the 1893 World's Fair on October 9th that something known as Chicago Day was celebrated. Over 750,000 people went to the fairgrounds down in Jackson Park on the south side of the city that day. And what were they commemorating? They were commemorating the anniversary of what that other star represented the Great, Great Chicago, Chicago Fire. Fire, right, which destroyed over the course of October 8th, 9th, and 10th over 2,000 acres within the city, 18,000 structures, $200 million in property damage. Sadly, almost 300 people or a little bit more lost their lives. 90,000 people were left homeless. Key foundational event, something that all Chicagoans know about, and yet... Today we're going to talk to you about all the things that you might not know about the Great Chicago Fire. We're going to be joined in conversation by Carl Smith, the Franklin Bliss Snyder Professor of English and American Studies and Professor of History Emeritus at Northwestern University. And we're going to be talking about his book, which has just come out, Chicago's Great Fire, The Destruction and Resurrection of an Iconic American City. Hi, Carl. How are you doing today? Hi, fine. How are you? I'm doing well, as, as well as can be expected. Um, yeah, from these strange times. That's true. I feel like we're um, almost all living our own personal uh, October 9th, 1871 <laughs> at this point. Right. <laughs> uh, but ground, every day we wake up and it's the same. That's right. Uh, well, thank you for taking the time to talk with us um, about your new book, Chicago's Great Fire, The Destruction and Resurrection of an Iconic American City. And I wanted to start, um, one thing that I'm really curious about, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, it's one of those foundational moments in the story that Chicago tells about itself. It's something that I think most Chicagoans feel they more or less know. So, I mean, what sort of led you to, to write this new book? I mean, what, what did you feel still needed to be told um, about the Great Chicago Fire? 
Well, first of all, oddly enough, while a great deal, as you say, has been written about it, uh, there is no nothing quite like this one in that it's a carefully researched and documented, but still a narrative history aimed at a general reader of the fire and what happened in the fire and then the recovery. There are, uh, um, what I call kind of anecdotal histories or analyses of the kind I wrote, but there isn't this kind of full narrative, particularly of the two parts. And in it, so it seemed it was very odd to me that there was this sort of hole, of, uh, a place for a book that didn't exist, even though we thought we knew it all. The other reason is that I think it's a much more complicated story than we, you know, we, we think we know. History is very humbling, and I can't begin to tell you how many things I found out uh, doing this after all I thought I knew about the fire. But there is this, again, central idea that there was this epic fire, and then Chicago burned down, uh, and then uh, it rose up, uh, and there's this sense of... of, of of, to be bigger and greater than ever, uh, and that other things involved in it, that there was a kind of unity that it created, a kind of Chicago spirit that was welded in the fire, and also that safety measures that we have today are attributable to the fire, and that became this place for the new architecture, so it's crucial in that. Uh, and to some extent, to a, a, a remarkable extent, this is true, uh, particularly the idea that it did not slow down the city's growth, but this is. But there are many complications to this. One is that the city was built in the first place and then rebuilt because the rest of the world needed this place in mm -hmm. a kind of expanding economy, and it's built and then rebuilt with outside money for the most part. Although a lot of in, inside entrepreneurs who helped make it possible, and of course this labor force who helped build it but also sense of how divided the city was by the fire, and if anything, that the fire deepened those divisions in ways that were quite visible in the years right after the fire, and things like the skyscraper revolution were not really till about 15 years after the fire, and safety measures came, but the, the city resisted them very, very strongly, and in fact, there was a second fire uh, less than three years later, but even after that, how long it took for serious fire prevention to take hold. Well, that's one of the things I, I find like, really fascinating about your book is the way in which it sort of complicates these, these many myths that seem to exist around the, the great Chicago fire of 1871. And, you know, mm -hmm. Chicago's own understanding of itself, that it was the, the Phoenix City that miraculously rose from the ashes that there was this kind of collective spirit that, that rebuilt it. And then and your book sort of complicates those elements of the myth. Um, I mean, I think one of the, the biggest sort of things that, that it helps us realize is that when we're talking about the Great Chicago Fire and there was a lot of, of destruction, I think it was how many thousands of acres? Two and a half, three square miles. Okay, two and a half, three square miles, right. So, I mean, that's a, that's a big area, and, like, about, like, 18,000 structures and over $200 million in damage. Here, I'm, I'm referencing your book. But, so, uh, you know, WLPN Studios is here in, in Bridgeport, and, right. you know, Bridgeport wasn't, you know, within the district where, that the fire passed through. Uh, in fact, in, in your book, you mentioned that um, the O'Leary's, uh, Catherine and Patrick, later actually moved to the Bridgeport uh, neighborhood yes. uh, a couple years after the fire. And I think for a lot of people living in this city, they probably don't think about that just like today, there was a south side and a west side that existed, maybe not ex stretching as far out as, as they do in our current moment. Well, nowhere near as yeah. far out. Uh, the, the city was a sixth of its current size in mm -hmm. 1871, and the northern border was Fullerton and the western one, right. uh, what now is Pulaski, and Bridgeport was largely not in the city of Chicago. The stockyards were outside the city of right. Chicago in the town of Lake. But that there were a lot of, I mean, there were a lot of areas to the south and west the fire didn't touch. I mean, I guess when oh, you yeah. like, read the popular even, accounts, you think like everything yeah. got wiped out. Even in the, the, the smaller city, uh, two-thirds of the city did not burn. I mean, when I say that, 
a larger, um, the, the city was about 35 square miles, so only about a third of the buildings. A lot of the city was not built up at all, mm-hmm. and a third of the valuation. I don't want to underestimate this fire because it is, uh, after the destruction caused by the fires of San Francisco, like the biggest urban fire and mm-hmm. one of the great ones of history, like of, 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 of Moscow and London and so on. I think what was more important in what terms of what you're talking about, because it did, let's not forget this, it burned the entire downtown, the mm-hmm. heart of the city, and it burned virtually the entire north division, north side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we couldn't minimize any of that. Right. But it didn't, it, it left most of the, 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 the commodities in the city untouched, the mm-hmm. grain and the lumber even. It left the key things that made Chicago Chicago in place. Uh, most of the railroads were not touched except for right in the downtown or the telegraph lines. And most important of all, it did not burn its location, uh, which is at the southwest edge of the Great Lakes. Uh, so it was this great uh, nexus for communication and transportation for, as I said before, this national and international developing economy yeah i mean i was amazed by how you know quickly like sort of business resumed which is reflected in your book i mean just to use the railroads as an example i mean there were already trains i mean trains were still am i correct in understanding that the trains were still running even as the the fire was burning in in some parts of the city people were getting out of the train and then there were four downtown depots Mm -hmm around the center of the city and three of them burned mm-hmm. but for example the one that had probably the, the two that probably had the heaviest traffic uh, because they connected to the east um, were burned but a kind of impromptu station was put together basically at the first stop outside of the downtown the southeast of the part of the city that was burned so mm-hmm. the trains kept running and in this desire to make sure that Eastern investors would not mm-hmm. abandon the city. Uh, a man named William Bross, who was a key booster of the city, uh, on, I think, fire, you know, ended to early Tuesday morning. On Thursday, he was on a train to New York to talk to investors there, and he caught the train, not in the downtown station, but this one just outside. And the news of the fire kept going through at, while the city was still burning because uh, the telegraph companies kept uh, offices open. Which is just, I mean, amazing to, to consider that disaster of this magnitude, of this scale. I mean, you've uh, 90,000 some people are displaced, which um, I like that you, you point out that was roughly the population of Cleveland. I think it was slightly larger than the population. So all of that could happen, and yet there were still parts of, of the city that were able, that had this resilience and were able to bounce back. Once again, just this notion of, of the sort of myth Two, that the city was more or less wiped out, which we, we know is it's more complicated than that. And then even the way it gets memorialized as, as well. So today we right. think of something like the, the water tower, um, which in some ways sort of failed in its most basic function <laughs> when, it, when it got fire and the roof collapsed. Um, right. But it becomes this, you know, iconic this icon in, in the city of Chicago. But as your book points out, there were actually other even other um, structures within the, right. the, the burn district that survived. And so it's always just interesting to me, like, what gets remembered and, and you This know. was fairly deliberate. I mean, we could think about it on even on a personal basis when some trauma happens, mm-hmm. what gets remembered and what gets forgotten and what gets emphasized and not. And Chicago's boosters were interested in the future, not the past. The most valuable asset was the future, as I've observed before, it no, and I, and this also gets back to let's pray. Let's say there is some truth in the resilience myth uh, that if heaven forbid Chicago was to suffer such a terrible thing, it could not have come at a better time. Mm-hmm. In the sense that it was on this strong upward ascent 
uh, of, of uh, astonishingly rapid development. You know, it was 11 times bigger than it was 21 years before, and that the things that created it were, in, in, if anything, stronger than the force of the fire that destroyed it. It shows the vitality of urbanization, Western expansion, uh, the transportation and communications revolution. This place is important. We need this place. Burn it down, and we'll just build it right up again. Kind of thing, you know, it, it, a lot of it happens with, with understanding these disasters is when they hit a city. You know, uh, Katrina hit New Orleans when it was already on a long decline. So it was much, mm-hmm. much harder for it to bounce back, as it were. And this is not about the spirit of the people, you know, or anything like that, and greater abilities and entrepreneurial knowledge. It's about historical moment. And as real estate agents like to say, location, location, location. It was a, a place that the people who raised the raw materials of the, of the East and mined the mines and raised the cattle and grew the crops needed it to get their products to the East, and the manufacturers in the East needed it to get their products to the, to the West. And people moving through this country in a time of remarkable expansion uh, needed it as a place to go. So it's, it, you know, you step back a bit and it's about the, the vitality of American urban expansion in this period. Um, uh, I was wondering, uh, where did the money and just the capital come from or how did, how did it come? So like, was it uh, primarily in terms of insurance? Was it primarily in terms of, of, of new speculation? Uh, where was it new money or just kind of insurance on existing capital that was there? That's a more complicated than I can answer. Okay. I certainly like to answer quickly. But it is <laughs> large, what, one of the other developments of the 19th century is the rise of New York as a center of banking and investment. One reason for this is also the development of large projects in which you need to put, spend a lot of money before you get a cent of return. And things like that include canals and railroads, you know, where you have to put a tremendous amount of capital in before you get any income back to lay the rails, to build, you know, to buy the machinery or to dig the canal. I might say very quickly here, what's very important here is the completion of the Erie Canal in 1825, which both makes New York the key city because it gives it access to this great hinterland and magnifies the importance of Chicago because it is at the end, the canal takes you to the Great Lakes and the Great Lakes takes you to Chicago, which is as far inland you can get uh, at that point. So New York banking rises. Uh, there is, this happens as well in other eastern cities like Philadelphia and Boston and others, and in Europe. These places become a business becomes where if people make their money in other ways, in real estate, manufacturing, whatever else, uh, they, their money now goes into banking and they, they loan their money. And what is Chicago but an extremely good place to either loan money to people who want to build there or to invest your own money? And yes, it includes insurance companies. Yes, it includes all kinds of other things. But it is, it is all these different things. And one thing that happens that slows the um, rebuilding in 1873, you know, that the city rebuilds some bigger and better in, in basically less than two years. And while the, the, the expansion continues greatly, so it's three times the size it was at the time of the fire by the time of, the, of 1890, over a million people, uh, there is this terrible financial panic in the fall of, 1873, largely because of overinvestment in railroads, and a number and a few people, including some prominent people in Chicago, go bankrupt because they, on the the, the bullish feeling about Chicago, they borrowed a lot of money at a high percentage, and now suddenly they can't get people to rent from them. They can't, you know, they can't get returns on investment. Uh, the economy in the United States, and in fact in the West, in uh, hemisphere in the 19th century, is a roller coaster. And given those conditions, I mean, 
once again, just kind of going back to like, I think at least a, a belief that I often see voiced among Chicagoans is that what the Great Chicago Fire did by allowing Chicago to rebuild, set it up to become this thoroughly modern metropolis. So by the time of the World's Fair in 1893, you know, Chicago is in the process of becoming the, the home to skyscrapers and, and, and so on and so forth. Right. Once again, as a historian, we probably don't want to, like, speculate. Do you think, given the course that the city was already on prior to the fire, I mean, were those sorts of developments, and, and I mean, were those kind of developments inevitable, even if the fire had not occurred? The short answer is yes. Okay. I think the fire accelerated developments mm-hmm. but did not change the course of developments. Mm-hmm. It's certainly cleared out a lot of bad real estate where the fire was, where mm-hmm. landlords were very hesitant to, to knock down hovels and slums right. and things like that because it is in the nature of hovels and slums that they're profitable. And suddenly they, these disappear overnight, so there's a kind of instant urban renewal, and, and that moves things along. But I think, as we've seen so many times, where buildings that we think are valuable and important for the historical thing get knocked down because, what can I say, they, they make way for progress. They make way for buildings that people will think will uh, are important to making more money. Uh, we've seen so many historically meaningful buildings, not slums and hovels, right. torn down in Chicago. So I think it didn't change the course of Chicago history. And as I said, while it certainly attracted people like Louis Sullivan, Louis Sullivan came to Chicago in 1873, mm-hmm. specifically because the company he worked for in Philadelphia had no work. And they, they thought he was wonderful, but they had to let him go. And he got on a train and went to Chicago on the idea that however else things were in the rest of the country, prospects were better here. And he was right. He got to know people like William LeBaron Jenny, who is this crucial figure in development of the modern skyscraper. Mm-hmm. We talk about Jenny stuff. It's 1884, 1885. That's a decade later. So I'm not going to say that's a long time in the history of architecture, but it's not this instant thing when it's cleared out and suddenly this skyscraper city right. goes up. Chicago was completely rebuilt right after the fire, but it was rebuilt with buildings that were at most two or three stories higher. Uh, and then those got knocked down purposely to make way for the newer buildings, so it took no fire to get rid of them. Hey, uh, Carl, I was wondering if you could talk just a, a little bit more about the divisions that occurred in the wake of the fire about about rebuilding. Were these divisions that just kind of were accentuated, that already existed and were accentuated by one-third of the city rebuilding, or did these divisions kind of lie in geographic, class, ethnic kind of fault lines uh, specifically? Well, they didn't lie in geographic lines. Uh, Chicago was, at the time of the fire, although it was changing, was a much more I say homogeneously settled place. Factories could be next to homes, and rich and poor were closer together, and so on. But in terms of the other things, there certainly were increasingly strong class and ethnic divisions. About 20% of the population controlled virtually all the wealth, and of this 20%, virtually all were white Protestant men from the Northeast. But meanwhile, 48%, almost half the population, was born in another country, most heavily Germany and Ireland. And if you include their children, uh, the people who at least one foreign-born parent, that's an overwhelming majority of the population, probably close to 80%. And working people made up something like 60% of the voters. Uh, So there is, in the Common Council, as the City Council was called then, the split between increasingly ethnic and worker-oriented aldermen and uh, the kind of uh, Yankee elite. This is coming out in various ways, and there are all these charges by the Yankee elite that these ethnics are corrupt, And to some degree it's true, but to some degree it's also self-serving. What corrupt means to them is they don't vote the way we want them to vote, uh, as well as they're taking money for their vote. Uh, They're not interested in the best interest of Chicago as we are. And the best interest for these wealthy people is keep taxes down and build the city as they want it to be built. This comes to a fore in, in various elections, even before the fire. But after the fire, this elite wants Chicago to be more fireproof, which is a very admirable goal, but they say the way we're going to do that is we're going to ban building with wood. 
and working people, uh, and what I mean by that is wooden exteriors. Every building has wood in it, but, and they say the way we're going to do this is by banning wood, and working people are saying, we can't afford to build with brick. And so it just comes down to a, a fight over this on the floor of the Common Council. And January of 1872, which is only about three months after the fire, there is a fold-out melee with bricks and, and stones being thrown and noses being broken and police being called that, that breaks up a common council meeting because protesters are saying this, this just can't be. The other thing that the, uh, happens is that the um, wealthy elite takes control of the, um, all the money that is contributed by outsiders to help in the restore Chicagoans. There's a tremendous spontaneous outpouring of aid, the equivalent today of around $200 million. This elite takes control of it. They claim they they, they wrested it from the hands of the corrupt aldermen who would misspend it and line their pockets. But meanwhile, their aim is to rebuild Chicago the way they want it and force people back to work and to use this aid as a kind of way to, to, to fashion certain kinds of behavior. And this creates very hard feelings uh, that redound for the next 25 years in labor violence in the city. Well, there's so much more that we could talk about uh, and, and the ways in which it helps us think about where we are today. But, Carl, I want to conclude by asking, you've done a lot of work around the, the Great Chicago Fire. In the process of writing this particular book, was there something that you learned that surprised you that you hadn't known prior or that maybe even changed your kind of previous thinking about the event and its meaning? Well, I think what I tried to do in this book is and we haven't really haven't talked to this, is try to see it much more how individuals see it as a kind of human thing. And so my key source was always the personal accounts, and then, but those really skewed to the people who have the, the wealth and the time and the literacy to write them. But then trying to find things like testimony or reports in the papers or reading the foreign language papers, how this was experienced by a wide range of people to kind of feel that way. And it's just remarkable how much of a kind of human story this is, how it resists generalization in terms of surprises. I was genuinely surprised by how much people who were, who were positioned to know realized what a terrible fire trap Chicago was. The, the records of the the fire department are just full of warnings about this. This is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and then it happens. And then after the fire, uh, again, how resistant people are to do anything to stop it from happening again. Chicago is remarkably about tomorrow through this period, mm -hmm. uh, which in some ways reaffirms the central myth of, of you know, resilience. All these things uh, have various sides to them, and some are appealing and positive, and some are not. It's not a matter of either or, it's a matter of both and. And with that in mind, I encourage everybody listening today to uh, pick up Chicago's Great Fire, the destruction and resurrection of an iconic American city. Um, it really does have a lot of those human stories that you were talking about, and uh, just helps us have such a much richer kind of understanding of this kind of pivotal event in the city's history. Our guest has been uh, the book's author, Carl Smith. Thurl, thanks again for talking with us today. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. Thanks so much. One of the handful of structures within the area that the fire moved across that survived, along with the water tower, was the mansion that belonged to Malin D. Ogden. He was an attorney, and he was the brother of the first mayor of Chicago, William Butler Ogden. His house stood just north of one of the oldest parks in the city, which still exists today, Washington Square Park. But Elliot, what do you think happened to the mansion of Malin D. Ogden, one of the few surviving structures from the Great Chicago Fire? Uh, based on what I know, it, it probably got destroyed. <laughs> yes! Not by fire. Not by fire. No, but because of real estate speculation yes. and old uh, Ogden falling behind on his mortgage payments. No, where the mansion... Uh, of, that belonged to Malin D. Ogden once stood is now where the Newberry Library stands ah. and has been there since the 1890s and that of course is where I work and this of course has been another episode of Pocket Guide to Hell the radio show I want to thank our guest Carl Smith for teaching us more about the Great Chicago Fire as always my co-host Elliot Heilman here here uh, our producer Annie Klein WLPN radio for hosting us and as for you fine Chicagoans, 
keep making history.